This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. How would you know when you have a mental health issue? I don't think I knew the right vocabulary to discuss my mental health until now being 28 years old. I think that could go a long way toward helping us prevent suicide. So we just don't listen to young people enough. Welcome back to Redefine You, where we have open and honest conversations with friends of mine in the industry to explore their ownership to self and mental well-being journey. Redefine You is meant to inspire you to look within and guide you to lead a life being grounded in you. If we are going to learn to handle all the challenges we're facing now and those coming in the next few decades, we're going to need a lot more people with the breadth, depth, and wide range of expertise, talent, skill, and dedication that Dr. Alfie Breland Noble brings to the table. Now, she is a psychologist, scientist, author, and a host of the podcast, Couched in Color a weekly show designed to encourage dialogue on the mental health needs of youth and young adults of color. And she's here to share with us how she's engaging marginalized youth and empowering them to care for their mental health, as well as ways we can best execute self-care and keep ourselves in optimum mental condition. Dr. Alfie, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Of course, my pleasure. Like when someone like you ask someone like me to come join you on your show and everything that you're about, how do I say no? So like, again, I don't say that to flatter you. It's just, that's real. So it's my pleasure to be here and see your beautiful shining face. And I'm just really excited. Oh, we're so excited to have you. Because as we start every single episode, we ask our guests, if you were to check in with yourself right here, right now, what would you find? Gratitude, honestly, like people throw that around so much nowadays. You have to practice gratitude. And I heard one of my friends, Charlemagne the God, say a couple of days ago, um, think of five things you're grateful grateful for to ground you. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, that really resonates with me. And so I don't say it as a cliche. I really say that I'm in a space of feeling deep gratitude for who I am as a woman, for who I am as a black woman for who I am as a Gen X Black woman and where I am in my life, for the career and life that I have right now. I Honestly, I could just go on, but I am so deeply grateful for where I am because I know where I came from. Yeah. Well, I want to start there. You know, where did you come from? I know that you, you started your career as a professor and then it led you into wanting to change your purpose. And that's a big thing that we talk about. When you find your purpose, it allows you to feel grounded in the power of you. So how did that shift for your own sense of self going from being a professor to now being somebody who is a mental health expert and being able to lead so many in such a great path? So for me, it really started with, I have to say for full disclosure, I come from a family of anxious people on one side. There's depression on one side, anxiety on the other. And Mm. being a child of baby boomers, those were just not conversations that people had, Um, right? Particularly just in general, but particularly in my community, which is a Southern African-American community. And so I always knew that my purpose had something to do with 
supporting young people to have the kind of, I don't know, emotional grounding and to build emotional wellness. Cause I did feel like I had that in my home. What I didn't have was the language and the ability to have conversations about what was this stuff that was like sort of hanging around me, like that stuff being anxiety. So long story short, my godmother is a professor. And from the age of like 10 or 11, I started feeling like, oh, I want to be what Mona does. Her name is Dr. Mona Thornton. I want to do, you know, what, what Aunt Mona does. And it ended up, I did the path. I did all the training. I have degrees from four different schools um, and I became a professor. Amazing. And I have to tell you, I got in it. I'm not even going to lie. From day one, I was kind of like, mm, I don't know if this is it. But that was the path. And so, again, being a child of baby boomers, it was really sort of you get a job and you stick with it. Mm-hmm. And I stuck with it for a really long time, literally for almost 20 years until wow. two major things happened. And I decided, you know, this ain't it. So one was around a promotion. Um, the promotion happened, but the drama that it took to get it. And then the second thing was around, it was something else in the workplace. And when that thing happened, I was like, Mm-mm, I'm not doing this anymore because people were not appreciating what I was bringing to the table. So the same thing that I was doing as a professor and had done for literally 20 years, as you know, I'm gonna make a, myself a nonprofit. I took my research lab, turned it into a nonprofit, the Acoma Project, and did not look back. And it's been about three years now since we've been running the nonprofit. And it has just been just gangbusters wonderful. And it's brought me to a wonderful place, like being able to be here with you. I reach so many more people. I feel like I have so much more impact. And for the first time in my life, like I said, I'm Gen X, so I'm a little bit older. I feel like I am literally living every day my purpose. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You know what's so great is that what I hear you talk about as well is this confusion that we had. I mean, I'm the same. I obviously come from a family who struggled with anxiousness as well. And I think we forget that back then when we were growing up, there really weren't words towards the feelings that we were feeling. So really what we're doing is just clarifying things. It's not like we're, you know, doing anything that wasn't already on the table. It's just now we're putting words towards feelings. And when you start to put that validation towards something, people go, oh, okay, I feel a little bit better because I now know that I can put basically a feeling towards uh, what my situation is and not feel fearful of it, right? But you talk about how there's so many significant differences in mental health problems, diagnosis and treatments among economic classes and among racial categories. How did these gaps develop and why? So I'll be honest with you. I follow this this woman. I don't mean to name drop. I just these are people when I say their names, it means I have respect for them. So I want everybody to hear me say that if I say your name, that means I respect you and what you do. Um, And it's a sister named Dr. Helen Sue, the Asian-American woman. I think she's faculty at Stanford. And she posted something on Instagram that really crystallized it for me. And I just Mm -hmm. saw it a couple again a couple days ago. And it was in the field. Just let's just say the mental health field globally. There are very few people of color 
there are very few people with any kind of marginalized identity, right? And so if upwards of 75% of the people who sort of run our field, it doesn't matter what the degree is, all that alphabet soup, PhD, MD, social, like LCSW, it doesn't matter, masters, whatever it is, the gatekeepers are people who generally don't have heavily marginalized identities, right? right. And so because of that, there is sometimes, not always, I'm not going to stereotype everybody, a lack of clarity around what it means to have a marginalized identity. And so if you if this if it's out here, right, it's not even in your peripheral vision, it's somewhere back here. If you don't see it, how do you study it? How do you talk about it? How do you teach about it? And so I think what happens is it's just kind of a sin of omission. And that's what's happened in our field of mental health. So for me, it really was this idea of trying to understand how do we take people out of the margins, right? So if you're a woman, if you're a woman of color, if you're queer, if you're trans, if you're non-binary, if you come from a family of immigrants and no one is speaking to what it means for you, someone who looks like you, talks like you, thinks like you, to have a mental health issue, how would you know when you have a mental health issue? And I think that's really been a big problem in our field. And so that's is that that gap, that huge gap in the knowledge, because people don't know what they don't know. They've never been exposed to it. I think in addition to that, what creates the disparities, right? When we talk about disparities, that really is just what it sounds. My mom, she's deceased, but she used to say, never define a word with the word. So we're just going to say differences. Disparities are when you have these huge differences um, that really it's hard to explain away. And so these huge differences that we call disparities are really an outgrowth of a lack of research, mm-hmm. a lack of knowledge, and a lack of investment and will to try to understand why might, I'm just going to make it up, a queer Latina who's from Colombia her, and she's first generation American, why might or what might her anxiety look like that may be triggered by something different than mine as an African-American woman who's a descendant of those who were enslaved. You know what I mean? And so that's that's where the gaps are. So we don't know what we don't know. And up until the last probably five, seven, eight years, I don't think as a field we've had a lot of investment in trying to figure it out, except for people like me and other people who do disparities work. So that's where the issues come from. We don't know what we don't know. We haven't made an investment and try to understand it en masse. Therefore, it's hard to provide treatments and intervention and understanding and knowledge to the masses because the masses are diverse. And we just have not done a good job of trying to keep up with what diverse masses need. And that's why I think education is key. And social media does have a great space in some capacity because it allows for more voices to be amplified, more stories to be told and to hit mass market of people who are looking for those stories to hear those stories and actually let them impact you. Do you use social media as a way of trying to get your story out and get more people's awareness within these different communities? It's such a great question. I'm so glad you asked me that 100% because what I've found is, you know, my passion is young people. When I say young, I'm thinking kind of 30 and under, um, young adults, teenagers. um, And that's where they are. They're on social media. And I have to be honest, Snapchat, I've never figured out. I'm trying. I keep trying. I have two teenagers <laughs> in my house. Lot, they love it's it. done. It's done. It's oh, is it? Okay, good. I'll have I to. Think, Thank I you. I don't think it's there anymore. I mean, I don't Thank know. You, ask, ask the Gen Z's. Not I'm going to take millennial. that. I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it because I just <laughs> never got there. But like TikTok and, you know, I'm working my way up on TikTok. Instagram has really been my sweet spot. Twitter, but, you know, everybody has their sort of ideas about what each of these platforms is useful for. And what I found is that between Twitter, 
Instagram, not so much Facebook, but, you know, a, a little bit I use it for the younger generation of folks, right? So younger millennials, older Gen Z young people, that's where they are. That's where I can reach them. And I'm able to put in a tweet or literally a static post or a story or even a real information that it would have taken me, you know, I, I don't know, a truckload more work 10 years ago to get that same message out. And so when I post something, I remember I did this reel, I don't know, last summer and it had, now this was, I know I'm not in your league, Haley, I know. No. But for me, it was the big deal. It had like 35,000 views. And I thought, and it was about taking care of yourself. It was like, I think it was a mantra reel. And I thought, okay, this is 35,000 eyeballs, right? Saw that, watched this whole reel all the way through. So yes, I absolutely use social media. And I'll say for full disclosure really quickly, I didn't start there. Right. I, I was a person who had to be convinced of the value of social media because I came from academia and in academia, the, the line was, why are you wasting your time over there? That's not going to get you tenure and promotion. Mm. So now I'm like, forget all that. Like I can reach so many more people and I can reach a diversity of people. And I learned so much from the people I follow uh, in that social media space. Since we are on the topic of social media, I'm just going to trail off just a little bit and talk to you yeah. about triggers that we may find for different communities within social media and how do you necessarily you know protect your following or try to encourage your following to what they can do to make sure that they're taking care of their mental health before they open the app if something is going to be triggered because the one thing i am hearing and the wonderful there's the wonderful thing that i'm hearing from you and that i'm loving right now is obviously the great the the instant it's like a google right we're basically providing a google for the younger generation to learn about things that are important by doctors and professors and people that we should have already been listening to right But then the negative part is that there is sometimes lack of truthful information being told on social media that then could trigger a specific community without the protection that we need because you aren't there by their side when they open up that app. So how do we protect different communities when they are opening up an app before, you know, feeling a specific way towards it? Sure. So I tell everybody the same thing all the time. I tell all my young people and not so young, I say young at heart, curate your feed and curate your news. You can't eliminate it, but you can reduce the likelihood that you're good. Right. Because think about the Everybody talks about the algorithm. Right. Mm-hmm. You think about the algorithm, what's being fed to you mostly, not always, not exclusively, is the stuff that you consume. And so if you're consuming negative things that might trigger you. Right then that's what's going to keep getting fed to you. So what I tell people is you either got to mute folks who are always posting stuff that's just not good, not healthy, or you got to unfollow them. Um, And so that's the first thing I say is curate your feed and curate your news. The next thing I say is be a good citizen in that space. Don't repost stuff like going all the way back to uh, the murder of George Floyd. I still to this day have a, a new friend, Ryan Monday. He says the same thing. He's never watched the whole video. I can't do it. I, once I see it, I can't unsee it. I don't need to ever see that. Mm-hmm. And so what I say to people is don't watch things like that. You can't unsee it, especially if you're anxious, you have a tendency toward, you know, depressive symptoms or depressive illness. You, Like you said, to your point about triggers, you know that you struggle with some uh, trauma in your past and these things are just going to bring all that stuff back up to the surface. Don't watch that stuff. And then in terms of being a good citizen uh, in the social media space, what I say to people is, Use those filters. I love when I'm scrolling and I see a sensitivity filter because I'm thinking, okay, there's somebody who cares about me. You want to share the information, but at least you care enough about the rest of us out here that you don't just 
you know, throw it in our faces and make us have to watch. You give us a choice. Um, and then a final thing I say to people is choose wisely. If you see that sensitivity filter, it's there for a reason. You can choose to keep scrolling. So those, this, those are little things that doesn't fix all of it. And, oh, and there's one more thing I do say to your point about before you get on and go into, so dive into social media, be in a good headspace, mm-hmm. right? Don't wake up, pick up the phone and don't do that. I don't even do that. My practice is to wake up and I have a tendency to grab for the phone, but I've taught myself before you open any app, the first app you need to open is a meditation app because meditation works for me. So I have a couple that I use. I don't even need to name them, but I, that's the first place I always go. And I force myself. I have an itch to go. Oh, let me check my email. Let me check my, you know, Instagram or whatever. I don't do it. I go straight for that app. And I think those are things that we can do actively. We call it active coping to protect ourselves. No, those are great tools. And I always say that, you know, curating your, who you follow and having a social detox is is vital in anyone's life. Um, But a lot of what you just discussed, what came to my surface is self-awareness, right? And that's something that can be taught, but is a practice in which you have to preach every single day in your daily practice, you know? So self-awareness and what I say by that is you're talking about people identifying if this sensitive piece of contact is going to trigger me. Well, you kind of have to be self-aware to know if it's going to trigger you or not. So taking that time with yourself to identify after something has triggered you to go, Hmm, what happened today to make this arise? Then you go, Oh wait, but oh, I opened up, you know, my app. I saw this horrific thing that, you know, I felt so deeply for, but then I went on with my day and I felt like everything else was so normal. So what triggered me? But it's about taking the time within your schedule to identify where that trigger really happened so that next time you're prepared for that flare up or that challenging moment and knowing how to be able to assess it better. You talk a lot about, obviously, the main causes of mental health issues in youth, teen and college adults. Can you discuss that a little bit more if, you know, beyond social media? Yes, of course. And so I'm mindful of recent incidents where two of them in particular around athletes. I feel like this is just a good image. One is Naomi Osaka. Of course. um, And the other is Simone Biles. And I just think about the pressures and they just both happened that those are just the two that came to mind. They both happen to be women of color. Um, I know this is true for loads of other folks too, of other genders, right? Of other ethnicities, I, I get it. And I think a part of it is there's so much, in, a couple things. One is there's so much information that's coming at young people so quickly and at such earlier ages, right? Mm-hmm. So I can remember when I was a kid, if you didn't watch six o'clock news, you kind of didn't know what was going on in the world where now kids are so set. Young people are so, I won't say kids, young people are so savvy. So you even have, I'm going to pick on Snapchat a little bit. This was a good thing. <laughs> they had a 30 minutes, I'm sorry, a three minute segment. I don't even know if they still do it. It was NBC news. And the three minute segment was I don't know, now it's not now this is something like that, but they would give you yeah. a snippet of all the headlines around the world. Right. So you can be informed without getting overwhelmed. Well, I think sometimes for some of our young people, they're not even ready for the three minutes, right? And so it's a lot for them to take any of it in. Um, So that's a part of it. I also think there's a piece of it that we boomers, right? Younger boomers, older Gen Xers, as parents of these young people have failed to provide. And I think that that has caused some problems too. And I will own it. What I will say is that for many of us, because we were not taught to talk about mental health when we were kids, we never developed the language for it. Mm-hmm. In addition, 
when we became adults and could have gone and found a language for it, a lot of us failed to do that. So what did that result in? We don't have a language to teach it to our children. I don't know how many people actually sit down nowadays even and talk to their kids about coping skills and coping strategies, which brings me back to Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka and, you know, how it was such a huge deal for both of them to begin talking about prioritizing their mental health. I even remember a few years before that when Michael Phelps said it, it was still kind of, yeah. Mm, yeah. that's cool, but, you know, yeah. mm, I don't know, you know, you that's what's wrong with him. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And so those are some of the things I would say. But I, so here's my question. One question I have is you talked about self-awareness. What I want to know is how did you come to the realization that it was something that was important for you? That's one. And then two, how did you decide or or what did you do to begin working on it? So, you know, because I don't I don't feel like I always know. I say this stuff so much and I talk about self-awareness to your point so much that I just forget that's not where we all start. Right. Everybody has to get there. And a lot of us like never get there in a lifetime. So for you, what was that? I'm just curious as a young person, what was that like to come to that realization? I got to do this. Well, I think it was more of the sense of traveling on my own for 10 years in a career where I had to be able to be my own cheerleader, mm-hmm. you know, so that automatically being in different countries and being young and then also wanting to protect myself, it came with this sense of awareness professionally that then came back in personally because my values and how I I professionally loved my job so much and I wanted to show up for myself and always be prepared Mm -hmm. came in with the same way within how are you going to then be prepared for Haley to make sure that when she gets off the flight, is she taking care of her skin? Is she doing a self-care routine? Is she getting her clothes ready for tomorrow? All these little things Mm -hmm. that made me feel like I was prepared for my job innately made me feel like I was prepared for what personally was going on for me as well. And that came from probably just having little OCD tendencies and also Mm -hmm. just loving organization and loving this idea of that sense of probably control, the control Mm -hmm. of self-awareness, right? Mm -hmm. Because when you feel self-aware, it is a sense of control because you start to go like, okay, or maybe shift the word control and put in groundedness. Mm -hmm. But I've always said, you know, people always say to me, you're so confident because I'm a curve model and I've always mm-hmm. been asked that question. And I've always mm-hmm. been like, eh, I don't really like the word confident. I'm mm-hmm. connected. I'm like, mm. I'm connected to my being because confidence can be, have many different perceptions, right? Yes. Many people different yes. can perceive confidence in a different way. Yes. For me, it never stuck with me because I'm not necessarily somebody that's like, oh yeah, I want to strut down a catwalk and I'm confident. <laughs> like that's what right. I think of when you say the word confident. And yeah. then, you know, but connected was like, it gave me this freedom to say that on my bad days, I'm still connected to who Haley is. I know her values. I know her heart. I know that if she messes up and has mistakes, that that's okay because mm-hmm. you're still connected to who you are innately in the overview of that person. So that's where I think my self-awareness truly came from. Now, vocabulary, like what you're talking about, I don't think I knew the right vocabulary to discuss my mental health until now being 28 years old. Hence why I'm now speaking about it in a different form than just being a body activist, because I didn't learn the right vocabulary and which was the right validation to use those words until now. Now that I have them, I'm like, I want to share it with the world because why wouldn't we share it? 
because this knowledge of validation towards who you are, it just feels so powerful and limitless. And that's where I think the importance comes from. But it starts with you and it can start big and small. And everybody else's journey to self-awareness is a different one. Yeah. Oh, you gave me chills. I'm like, wait, at 28, I was like so lost. Like there's no part of me that had any idea about any of what you've just shared. And two things I would just pick up on and put a pin in both for myself and for anybody who I hope gets an opportunity to, you know, enjoy this. And that is one is I want to add one little thing that you said. You said Haley knows her values. Mm. I would also say without the S, she knows her value. value. Period. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know that you are valuable. And one thing I'm always saying to young people and young at heart is you're valuable just because you exist. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to have anything. You don't need to own anything. You're valuable, but just because you're here, like there's so many opportunities that we get to enjoy you when you show up, just like just walk into the room and we get to just enjoy that aura and we get to enjoy that beautiful face or that beautiful body or, you know, whatever it is that you're bringing to the table. So that value I felt like was really important. And now when you said it, I was like, oh, I got to say that part about just she knows her value, period. Mm-hmm. So I love that connectedness piece. And I'm going to carry that with me always. And I'm going to credit you. And I'm going to say, no. I'm connected. I'm connected. It's so important. It really is. And I and I think for so many years, I would say it in interviews and people would be like, oh, for, for spirituality. And I'd be like, and I'd, I'd be like, but no. And I'd be like right. stern about it because I'm like, no, right. this is what I feel. This is That's what it. I feel like I'm connected. And, That's and it. it just made sense to me. And when it makes sense to you, just keep riding that wave. Don't let anyone else try to teeter that because it's important. Oh God, um, I love it. You know, you talk a lot about how our personal answers inform your ability to help others. Can you speak to us a little bit more on this? Sure. So when, so let me I'm make sure I'm following. So our yeah. personal, so who we are as people, right? Like you said, our own connectedness drives how we engage and what we do for others. Is yeah. that? Yeah. Okay. So for me, it comes back to something else you said, which was about, you had all of these life all this life experience, traveling and being a curve model and having to show up for yourself. And that it was important to you because you were driven by this desire to make sure you showed up in the, I'm paraphrasing and not very well, but in the Mm. right way for you, Mm. right? You wanted Mm. to show up professionally in the right way, which translated into showing up personally in the right way. Right. You being connected. And so for me, that's really what it is. Cause I can remember that feeling of being a chocolate, dark skinned, like dark chocolate little girl, in the late seventies, early eighties and feeling like there was no place for me, right? Cause back mm-hmm. then we had no curve models, right? Like you would get, so we had to really date myself. Like, so anybody who's got parents over 40, they'll know what this is. They used to have this thing called the Ebony Fashion Fair. Mm-hmm. And it was a traveling fashion show and they would always have one curve model, right? And that was special, but she was the only one. So what does that tell you? That tells you that you don't really belong with the other ones. The other thing was, I'm not going to pick on Ebony, but in my day, being a dark chocolate girl, this was a little bit pre-Naomi Campbell. It's not a thing. That was not cute, Mm. right? People were not looking at chocolate girls. So that, I felt like that really did a number outside of my house again, because inside my house, I was 
the most beautiful princess queen like ever like to grace this earth, like all my uncles and my aunties and right. They were like, oh God, you're so smart. You're so beautiful. But that didn't translate to my peer group. And so for me, the personal influence and the professional was really, it started with, I need to love me. And that was yeah. a journey. Like on, I had to get there. I really had to get there. And I don't think I really fully got there until I was late twenties, early, th- probably early thirties after a lot of life experiences, making bad right. decisions, hanging out with the wrong folks, all that kind of stuff. So to me, some of it was really about, is there anything I can do with my life to help the next little girl or the next little boy, or now the next non-binary kid yeah. feel like there's Thank a you. space for them when nothing around them is telling them that there's a space for them. Can I help with that process? That's a lot of it for me. And you talk a lot about, or you talked a little bit about it earlier, about the anxiousness within your family. What yeah. was your own mental health journey growing into your 20s? Yeah, Oof. Um, I, I didn't get there until probably late 30s with accepting that I have anxiety. And if I had to self-diagnose, what I always say is generalized anxiety disorder, 100%, right, all day. Um, mm-hmm. And I know the paternal lineage that it comes from, but it took me a while to get there too. So the journey was first coming to the realization, you know, and I'm sure you understand this. There's a part of it where you feel like you're telling on your family when you talk about your own journey, because you got to talk about in part them and what you did or didn't learn from them <laughs> to share your, right. Share your stuff. Never so for really me, does well. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Cause they don't want you telling their business. Right. And no. so I don't name names, but I will say that on that side of the family, that generalizing generalized anxiety disorder was kind of rampant, but it was never described as such. Mm-hmm. This is just who we are. This is proper right. planning, right? It, which is ridiculous. This is like packing. I'll give you the best example I can come up with right now. Packing for a trip a week ahead of time. Are you? What? No. Right. And so, but being told, <laughs> right? Come on. But you being know. told that's how you plan effectively. No, it's not. That's not, that, that is like so anxious, right? Because you're so scared you're going to forget something. You're not going to get it right. So anyway, Having in my late 30s finishing school, and I guarantee you, that's why I went into this field, because I needed to heal it for myself. I could have gone probably into a million different directions, but there was something that I really needed to heal and I didn't have a name for it. So my mental health journey was really finishing school at 28. And I went back and got another degree from uh, med school later on after I had my kids. But finishing that degree and still feeling the stuff. Like Sunday scaries, I'm big on Sunday scaries. I always post about it because that was me. Sunday night, I would just get like sweaty and I would get this knot in my stomach. And I, my thing is like, I feel this ball, it's like a lump in my throat. I can feel mm-hmm. it just like, right? And I never, I didn't know what it was. And so that's what it was for me was understanding. Then once I labeled it, figuring out what I needed to do to address it. So that's where meditation came. And I had, I have to shout her out. Dr. Maya McNeely, who is this BA, she is bad, fierce Latina psychologist uh, when I lived in North Carolina, who turned me on to meditation. And that really helped move me along in my journey. Understanding, the final thing I'll say is with the understanding that anxiety doesn't just go away. Mm-hmm. You have to work on managing and reducing your anxiety. It's not just, oh, I know what it is. Now it's going to flow. Mm-mm. It's every day. So for some people, that's meds. And that's okay. For some people, that's meditation. And that's okay. For some people, that's exercise. 
all of it is okay. Like we each have to do something. But the key is what I learned in my personal mental health journey was I had to do the thing and I had to keep doing the thing to keep the anxiety down. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's like I said before, it's a daily practice and people forget that. And it's unfortunate that sometimes you have to make it a daily practice. And I know that it can be hard and everyone's schedules, but I always think of how wonderful would it be if you made a schedule where every single, you know, couple hours you put in something for you, because we all make schedules for our our goals and our aspirations. But what about our self-growth goals? What about the ones in which we want to develop into being able to feel like we have control over where our emotions take us with no matter what our surroundings are. And especially if another pandemic happens, you know, we are controlled in a space of understanding that change happens. We are adaptable to it and that we can still love ourselves through that period of time. I want to talk to you a little bit about the importance of understanding your baseline. I don't know a little, I don't really know about this. So, so tell me, tell me, I'm curiosity. Is, Yay. Is- Yay. Oh, I'm so glad you asked me that. Cause I, I've been talking about that for over 20 years. Baseline is really under like, okay. So let me say for full context, how do you know if you're out of alignment, disconnected, if you don't know on some tiny level, what mm-hmm. connectedness feels like, right? So full right. connectedness is like you just own firing on all cylinders, right? And that's, I feel like I perceive that's where you are, but it's a whole lot of us out here who are nowhere near that. Mm-hmm. I feel like baseline is getting to a place. It's just where you can start, right? And so what I tell young people is this, think about how you feel every day when you wake up for a week, right? That's your data. You're collecting data, right? Some people use like mood boards. I'm not talking about a mood board. I'm just talking about overall, inside and out. How do you feel when you wake up in the morning? And sort of track that over a week. If you can track it over a week, I bet you will find that there are a couple days where you feel, I don't know, let's say it's on a scale of one to 10. You wake up and you feel like you're at a a five or a six. Mm -hmm. If that happens more days than not, then the five or six is your baseline. And what that might look like, how it might manifest itself is, I'm not super happy, ah, bouncing off the walls. I'm not super sad. I'm just okay. So to me, baseline is like, what's your neutral space? What's your space where you are just, maybe not even at peace, because at peace is kind of loaded too. It's loaded more positively, but it's sort of mm-hmm. just where you're here and you're just you're just okay. But so few of us even know what that feels like We just go through life and we're sort of spinning. Right. So to me, it comes back to like this example of getting to a place where I understood that there is a thing called anxiety. And until I knew the label for the thing called anxiety, it was this feeling that I had. It was a lump in my throat. It was a knot in my stomach. Do you know what I'm saying? Sometimes it was back spasms. um, And that's not my baseline. But I I couldn't label those symptomatic Mm. things until I knew what it felt like to be kind of asymptomatic. So I feel like I'm kind of talking in circles, but I really do feel like for me, baseline is you got to know on just an okay day when you're in a neutral space, you have to know what that feels like for you. And until you know that, I think it can be very hard to get to that space that you are of self-awareness and knowing what tools you're going to be able to use that are going to be effective for you. 
Well, I'll be completely honest with you guys this morning, but I woke up this morning in a, I would say, in a baseline. And I asked, <laughs> and I asked myself the question. And I and this is, I think, where my self-awareness comes in. And I'm applauding myself by also telling you guys all this, 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 this uh being vulnerable about this morning. Um, but as I woke up super early, as I do at five o'clock in the morning, I had that that feeling of there are certain days where I've woken up at five and I'm like, I'm going to go. I'm ready for my day. I'm so excited. And today I woke up and was like, oh, I'm tired, but I have to get this stuff done. And so I asked myself the question of what changed that? What's changed now in my environment that has now tilted this? Maybe it's, you know, lack of sleep and not getting enough hours, but hey, I've worked off four hours and been perfectly okay and excited for the day ahead and had no qualms about it. So what is, you know, where am I at? And do I have the full answer? Probably not, but at yep. least I asked myself the question. And that's where I think, I applaud myself and why I'm telling you this today is because yes. I recognize that I was at a specific place when I woke up this morning, not in a place of judgment either. Cause I think that sometimes you can sit there and judge yourself and be like, well, yesterday I was so excited. I was so yep. ready for it. And yep. then today I woke up and I'm not ready for it. Am I either <laughs> going to sit here in the guilt and snooze my button, or am I going to wake up and ask myself the hard question of going, what's inflicting on this and how can I be of service to myself to make it a more positive day? Nailed it. That is that is exactly it. But and the thing that I will also applaud you for is stopping and noticing. And mm. that's also a part of identifying just noticing. There's so few of us who even notice. Right. We open our eyes and whatever emotion is sort of that wakes up with us. That's what carries us through the day. But yeah. you stopped. You stopped. And the noticing is what's key. So, yes, I love that. You like you just nailed it. It was, it was perfect. Well, you know, and, and here I am, I'm loving this conversation and I'm so happy we're here. Um, but no, I, thankfully I got a new little kitten and it was a five little, I was like, oh my God, you are a saving grace. This little color this morning is everything to me. And I'm, I am back to the 10 that I've wanted to wake up with. Um, <laughs> who knew, who knew? Okay. Let's talk a little bit more about the connection between mental health issues being stigmatized and suicide rates, because that's something that you speak so openly about something yes. in which we talk about on this podcast and I know it's a hard conversation for all but the more that we talk about it the more it prevents a crisis so I need to know from your point of view what we can do moving forward a couple things one is we have to be open to having uncomfortable conversations right mm -hmm. and so when we think about where the suicide rates have grown the most this is just purely based on data and remember what I said about how we collect data so I think even the data that we have, we're not reaching all the people we need to be reaching in terms of asking who is feeling suicidal, right? Like, I don't think we know fully. So, because there are certain communities, we never go ask them. So we don't know what they're struggling with. So I will say for the data that we do have, which is, I think is flawed because we don't reach everybody. Um, we know that for African-American youth, young kids, tweens, like five to 12, the suicide rates went up some astronomical amount in a, over like a 15, 20 year period. Yeah. I would say that in part, not just for that group, but for suicide rates in general, it is a few things. One is we don't talk openly enough about what it means for different people to have the experience of feeling suicidal. 
we make people feel so ashamed that they've even thought it, yeah. that it makes people hesitant to reach out for help. Right. So we're not having enough conversation. Two is the way we approach suicide prevention. This now this is my pet peeve. I don't think we lean in enough to going back to something you said earlier, the self-awareness that exists in diverse communities. Diverse mm-hmm. communities have strength and resilience and, and th- they're not perfect, but things that they do already, healing practices, we have no idea about. And I think if we could lean into those a little bit, not only would they benefit the communities they come from because they're culturally relevant, but they could benefit other people. Right. So one one clear example is something called healing circles, which I know resonates with people um, of indigenous cultures in the United States, I'm sure globally, but also African-Americans, this idea of healing circles. And I know that there are probably different iterations in different groups, but good luck getting somebody like a insurance provider or whoever to pay for healing circles. Right. Right. Why? What, What would they say in their defense? Well, we don't have any data. Why don't we have data? Because nobody studies it. Why doesn't anybody study? Because you can't get anybody to give you money to study this concept of healing circles, right? So it's all like a vicious cycle. I think as well, we don't take enough time, um, go back to young people, asking young people to tell us what their experiences are and then shutting our mouths and listening. They start talking, we immediately dive into fixing. What about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? Going back to the example with Naomi Osaka. I'm not going to call the tennis star's name. I was kind of livid. When Naomi Osaka came out and talked about what she was dealing with, before she explained it all to superstars from back in the day, women went off on her. What is she doing? What is wrong with her? She knows this is her responsibility. She's be out here doing these interviews. We all had to do it. I did it. She should do it. That's what a lot of us Gen Xers and boomers do. That's why young people say, okay, boomer, right? They don't pick on us Gen Xers so much, right? But the boomers, right? So if we could take another tack and ask Naomi, what is happening that made you decide you don't want to do these interviews and listen to her, and all the people she represents who are like her going through the same thing, I think that could go a long way toward helping us prevent suicide. So we just don't listen to young people enough and we, you know, without trying to fix stuff for them. So those are some of the things I say we have to do to make it easier for people to come forward when they're feeling these things and to make it easier for us to find effective ways to help. I'm not saying it's a cure-all, but I am saying it's got to be better than, you know, some of what we're doing right now. Well, you have children yourself, so I'd be curious to ask you, you know, what conversations do you have with your kids when you notice that maybe it's more than just a challenging day? Oh, girl. So it's a little harder with my son than it is with my daughter. <laughs> See, that's okay. My, that's real life. That's what it that's is. Right. That's for real, for real. It's a real there life. There you go. That's, that's exactly right. And I was laughing with my daughter last week um, because we were having a deep conversation. I said, this is when it sucks to be the kid of a psychologist. And she's like, yeah, mommy. She starts (laughs) giggling like she's a 17 year old. She's telling me the truth. So with my kids, it's really about me playing the role of observer before I ever have a conversation. So I'm always watching, not stalking Mm -hmm. them. I don't track their social media. I don't do all of that because I feel like I've prepared them. Now, if I get on there and see something sideways, you know, you got to lose all privileges. So I think they kind of have that, that fear in the back of their mind. Like, and mommy's on social media all the time. So she might see it. Um, So they're good with that. But what I mean by observing them is I, I know their baseline. Or at least I feel like I have a sense of what their baseline is. Right. And because I can see that 
when I see anything that veers drastically, and of course it's going to go up and down, that's normal. But when I see something that looks like it's veering drastically, that's when I sort of send warning shots. I'll just check in. How you, I'll even text my kids. We'll be in the house and I'll text, be like, especially my son, how you doing, man? And he'll text back, I'm good. And then I'm like, okay. But if I text him and it takes him a while to respond, then I go down the hall. He's always playing video games with his crew. Um, how's it going, man? And often I'll get a response. But when I don't get a response, that's when I keep sort of picking, right? So I've learned, mm-hmm. I won't even get into all the details, but I've learned how to engage him in a way that makes him not feel overwhelmed. But he had to explain it to me because the way I used to engage him, like he felt smothered. And that doesn't work with him. With my daughter, I've learned, she and I communicate a lot. She's just much more of a talker. I keep telling her she's going to be a psychologist, but she's fighting it. Um, (laughs) But she's just much more of a talker. So I think the bottom line is I'm always trying to be aware from a distance of what their baseline is and trying to calibrate my engagement with them around their emotions tied to what I'm seeing. So if I see everything's okay, leave them alone. Like I don't need to be in their business, but if I see something that looks, mm, then I'm going to really find the best way for each of them, which is separate and different for each one to engage. So I hope like, I don't want to tell all their business, but I hope that's enough detail that people understand like kind of what my process is. Yeah. Well, I think it's just important to say that to any parent who may be trying to find, you know, what is the best approach to speak to my children about specific topics without, like you said, smothering them or making them feel like they're teetering or I'm teetering them towards yep. a different capacity um, yep. because of the pressure of, of needing the answers. Right. Because yep. sometimes they just don't know. Sometimes kids That's just right. are confused and they don't know what, why they're feeling the way that they're feeling. And sometimes we're like, you should know, find the answer. And it's like, That's fine. no, well, mom, I don't know. And it's sometimes right. I don't know is okay as well to not know and to let them have that freedom to not be having all the answers at such a young age. Um, I, well, there's a couple things now that have come to mind, but we're going to, we're going to skip and then maybe come back because okay. I want to know real quick, is that baseline something that you also use within your relationship in, you know, partners and love relationships, or you would advise for people to do as well? Yeah, heck yeah. Right. Because I'm, cu- I think, I'm like curious. I'm like, is this yeah. for children or is this like, should I no. be using this baseline on Dominic, think, my partner as well? Yes. Yes. Use it on Dominic. Because the reason <laughs> it's important is because it helps you calibrate how to be mm. a better partner to them. Do you know what yeah. I'm saying? So my spouse is a person, his name's Richard. And Richard is super reserved. He's the person, the best examples would fade into the, the woodwork in a, like a a group meeting. Like he's just sort of, he's in the back, he's watching everything, right? He's paying attention to everything that's going on. He's not the guy who's going to be coming in the room, taking up all the space. That's just not him. And so sometimes Richard is so quiet that honestly, you just, you just would overlook him, right? Just, Mm -hmm. now he's a big dude, but you just would overlook because he's not in your face. He's the opposite of me. You know, they say opposites attract. So I think this idea of baseline also translates a little bit to, understanding what kind of personality your partner has and understanding what kind of person they are so that you know how to best engage them, right? Not based on what your needs are always, but based on what their needs are. So, you know, if they're quiet one day, but they're always quiet, you don't trip. But if they're quiet one day and it lasts for like three weeks, then maybe you need to check in. But if you don't know that about them, you don't know their baseline, How do you know when to check in? So yes, I tell everybody, use it for yourself and use it in your relationships, whatever those relationships are, parent to child, siblings, you to your parents, you know, just just being aware, I think is really important. 
Well, checking in is something that I am a big advocate for. I have a mental health incentive called check in with you. It's something I think within my relationship, I do quite often. I feel like I may overly check in with him because he's like, he's like he, he has his, you know, ups and downs of being very talking not. And then like, sometimes like, are you okay? He's like, just ask, but are you sure? Like, he's like, I'm sorry. I'm just wanting right. to make sure everything's great. And I love you. Right. Right. Um, but right. it is, it's that thing if you just want to be there all the time, you know, and sometimes when you're so self-aware yourself, you're like, are you checking in with yourself? Cause if not, I'll check in for you. I'll That's make sure right. that I check in with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, don't pressure anyone, guys. That's not what yes. I'm trying to say here. But sometimes it, if, you know, that's what partners are there for is to see things that are happening that maybe the, the person outside yourself isn't seeing yourself. Um, right. And it's something that you beautifully are teaching within all your different platforms. I do want to talk quickly at the end of this conversation, just really about diverse populations, because yes. this is a conversation that needs to be had and needs to be amplified in how you can become an ally and how most importantly, not only with women and different diversities and cultures, but how can we understand how to get the right research or to be an ally, to be somebody that can speak to a different, to a, a person who maybe not have the same life experiences, but to come with it with kindness, care, and understanding? I think what you just said is exactly it. You start from a place of wanting to share kindness, care, and understanding. And mm -hmm. sometimes that means we have to listen. Mm -hmm. um, that's one thing. So listening, right, from that space of holding space for people, right? I hear a lot of people in communities of color talk about holding space. That's so important. I hear a lot of women, just in general, of all races, ethnicities, yep. talking about holding space. Holding space is another thing that's really important. I think holding space without judgment, without a need to fix, right? Well, yes, without a need to compare. Oh yeah, I know what that's like because I so -and -so, I don't care in this moment. I don't care what your experience is. I'm trying to tell you mine because you asked me. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to ask me, ask me and then, then be quiet. Let me tell you what my experience is. I think using our platform to amplify, like you have this beautiful, amazing, tremendous platform, right? You talk a lot about loving yourself and loving your body and, and being positive about your body inclusive of all shapes and sizes, you know what I mean? Not, you know, and so that's important. I think having a platform, even if your platform, not you, but other people, even if you feel like your platform is small. You're always valuable. Even if you touch one person. That's it. So share the space with them. So for me, what, how that looks, what that looks like is as a heterosexual cisgender woman, always mentioning that when I talk about communities of color, I'm inclusive of all the diversity within communities of color, right? There's like 30 something different ethnicities under the label Asian American. Even within that, there's LGBT and queer folks in that label, right? Even within that, there's people with disabilities. And so if I can even name it every time I have an opportunity to talk about it, I'm amplifying something that somebody out there is going to listen and be like, oh yeah, I didn't think about, you know, for somebody who's Latino or Latinx, that they might also have a disability or might also have queer identity. All of that's important in who they are. So I think it's really using our platforms in the right ways, being a good ally to your point, finding the right ways to be a good ally, 
educating ourselves. We're not asking people to teach us things. All of those things I feel like are important. And then within all of that was something, something that's deeply important to me is amplifying the need for more research about diverse populations. That's part, again, part of the reason why I left academia is because there was not enough space. There were not enough people in academia. Think about the demographics I talked about at the beginning who were making an effort to say no, to do just what you're doing today. We need to know about all these different groups and what are their experiences with mental illness and mental health and how do they conceptualize it and how do they think it might be good to treat it? What are the healing practices that they use that we could learn from? Until people start to do that, I think we will continue to struggle with these disparities. And the final thing I got to say, I'm on my soapbox about it. We have to have more federal funding. The money that comes from the government for biomedical research that's supposed to benefit us all. It's mm-hmm. got to benefit us all. So we've mm-hmm. got to have more diversity in terms of who's leading research studies. So we think about the vaccine, right? One of the selling points was there's a young African-American woman, Dr. Corbett, who helped to develop the compound that then became the vaccine. That was a selling point. That convinced a lot of people of diverse communities. Oh, okay, well, she did it. So maybe I'll go do it, right? Now, it wasn't perfect, but you know, it's those are the kind of things that we have to do. You speaking on top of all of this, I mean, there's such a, a need. And what I hear is obviously effective research, right? And the research needs to be done to be able to put things in a place so that people feel more acceptable to the change that needs to happen. Is there a place in which people can, you know, sign up for a petition or, you know, an area of a nonprofit that you suggest people to go to? What would, you know, what would be your last saying of where people can go if they want to get involved right here, right now? I would say start with your representatives, right, at the federal level, because those are the people, the senators and people in the House of Representatives are the ones who create the budgets that then go to the federal government, the National Institutes of Health, National Science Foundation, all those. So if you're telling those people that what's important to you is that all of us are represented among those who lead the research and then participate in the research because we all pay taxes that go to funding them, I think that's the single best thing you can do because for every one person who does it, you reflect hundreds, if not thousands of people who think the same thing, but never took the time to say it. Right. So I, I would say that's where we start. And I think it's a wonderful question. I really appreciate you asking it. Well, no, I'm, I really appreciate you being able to bring it all to surface and to have me get to a place to ask it and to know we're outside of just speaking about mental health, that there also is research that needs to be done to make change in other communities and also to allow us to have the funding behind people getting the right needs that they're looking for. So as I leave every episode, I ask a couple questions that tap into what make you, you. I'm going to ask you first off, we talk a lot about building your personalized toolbox to lend to your emotional journey. What served you the last time you experienced a flare up or maybe just a challenging moment? Meditation. Always. And then lastly, what are the three biggest lessons that you've learned in your life? These can be words, feelings, sayings, moments, whatever authentically comes to your mind. I am worthy is mm-hmm. the first one, period. I am worthy. The second one is the ancestors and there are people who've come before me who created space for me to be exactly where I am today. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful to them for that. There were things that they had to do, that they had to struggle through, that they may have never resolved that allow me to be where I am today. 
And then the final thing is, I always say this thing, it's like tagline is everywhere. And I really believe it for myself. And I'll just, I'll just share it with you. I say yeah. to myself all the time, and I say it to other people, I wish you lots of love. I wish you lots of light. And this is the geeky part. And I hope that it's always informed by good culturally relevant science. And while it sounds mm. cliche and geeky, it's important to me because that's part of my journey. That when I was little, had somebody come up with some culturally relevant science that my parents could have resonated with, it probably could have saved me a whole hell of a lot of heartache. So those are the things that I would say. You're wonderful. I'm so <laughs> glad. I'm I'm so glad that we've had you on today. And I'm just so so happy that you are sharing your vulnerability, your story and your insight and your continuous insight, because it seems like you're growing to learn a lot more about yourself and also being a parent and how to translate what you needed as a little girl into where you're projecting that into your nonprofits, into your social media, into just your voice in general. And that's a very important lesson to be learned. And a very important thing as you get older, you still have so many more discoveries. And that's the most wonderful thing that I hear about you is that you're still discovering and, and teaching along the way. So thank you. Thank you Uh, so much. Thank Um, you for being you. Thank you. No, thank you. And if anybody would like to connect with Dr. Alfie, she can be reached on her Instagram and Twitter. It's Dr. Alfie. Thank you. Thank you. And if you are looking to continue the conversation around living an unapologetically authentic lifestyle, then this podcast is just for you. Our goal is to build a community in which you feel empowered to celebrate you by hearing inspiring stories of ownership to self, to always remember to lead with the three M's. That's mindfulness, movement, and mental engagement. You've got this, and we're here to support you along the way. So be sure to subscribe and download so you don't miss an episode. It's okay to not be okay in your journey to become grounded in the power of you. Some of the topics we discussed today may have been triggering. And if you're in need to speak to a crisis counselor, please text home to 741-741 or head over to projecthealthyminds.com slash partnerships slash Haley for your curated resources ready to hear from you. This has been a Stage 29 podcast production. The podcast is executive produced by Haley Hasselhoff, Patty Chiano, Laferne Cusack, and Stephanie Kaysen. Our audio editors are Jackson Ruff and Jonathan Dematty. Callie Kelts is the social media producer. And a special thanks to the rest of our podcast crew, Rwani Horenigay, William Cusack, Lisa Clark, Katie Brown, and Morgan Kaler. This podcast has been produced by Stage 29 Productions for entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast does not constitute medical or professional advice. Do not reflect the opinions of this company, any of its parent companies, affiliates, subsidiaries, promotional sponsors, or advertising agencies. The views expressed by the host and the guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or an entity they represent. For more information, please go to stage29.tv.